The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. I'm delighted that we have for the Culture Club today and what seems to be becoming a bit of a theme between musicians and actors who have taken to writing. And we all know Declan O'Rourke's music, but now he has published his debut novel, The Pawn Broker's Reward. Declan, thank you very much for joining us here on the Culture Club on The Last Word. So what prompted you to move to writing novels rather than writing songs? Pleasure, Matt. Uh, great to be here. I, I never foresaw it coming, to be honest. Um, I never had the, the urge. A couple of people over the years, I can count them on, you know, a few fingers, people who said to me really seriously, you should be writing prose. Shay Healy was one of them, the great Shay Healy. And a guy in Australia was another one. And then the third one was um, actually my, my new publisher. <laughs> you know, so um, uh, when the other people said it to me in the past, I didn't see the attraction. I was I just was saw this myself, because but, that your songs are stories and that they sort of saw the potential to extend the sort of storytelling that you've shown in your songs into, well, I, into I, prose? I, I, I couldn't speak to exactly what they saw. I'm not sure, but they saw something in my writing. Um, maybe it was that. I'm, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm often surprised when people say you're a storyteller. You, you, you really focus on stories because I don't. I don't think too hard about it. You know, I just come at it the way it comes natural sometimes or what, what excites me or moves me, you know. I don't think about it in terms of your, your you know, But the discipline, for, the discipline of sitting and writing songs, were you able to then apply that to the actual writing of this novel? Yeah, I think years and years of writing in some form, you know, certainly stood to me really well and in ways that I, cannot imagine you know I just take for granted because I'm just used to doing what I do uh, saying that writing a book took a whole lot more discipline you know when I write songs I, I can be anywhere on the move and you're just thinking as you go you could be in the shower you could be driving whatever washing dishes uh, with the book it's not going to happen unless you actually sit down in a place and so I knew very, I, I mean, I started it like three and a half years ago and I knew st that I was going to have to find a routine. I struggled to do that before COVID with family life and touring and what have you. But I set myself a goal to lock myself in a room every day for a few hours. And, uh, and I managed it with varying degrees of success until, as I said, COVID came along. And then I, I was seven days a week. I didn't miss a single day in over seven or six months seven days a week and uh, just loved it. I loved it. I, at one stage, I was getting up at four o'clock in the morning to get my You were that immersed in hours. the story as well, yeah. was it, as well as the writing of it? Oh, Tell yeah. us about the story. What is The Pawnbroker's Reward about? Well, I I read an account years ago. Um, it was it was an account that was, I suppose, recorded by Padre Lira, a man from... Um, the outskirts of McCroom in West Cork. He was a priest and uh, he was uh, a, an Irish language writer, part of the revival and all that. Um, and he, he described these people who lived very near him. He said, he talked about the man who carried his wife home from the workhouse mile after weary mile to their old home and was found the next morning dead 
with his wife's feet held to his chest as if he'd been trying to warm them. And, you know, the, when, when I read that, I still maintain that's one of the most powerful things I've ever imagined or seen, you know, it's and it, it, it hits you like a train, you know. I think it's very, it's it's tragic, but it's beautiful at the same time. You know, it took me years to figure out why I, I was so emotionally hit by it, you know. Uh, and I think it's got a lot of beauty in it. It's, you know, it's it's somebody giving the last of their warmth in their own last hour to their loved one, you know, and who doesn't want to be able to... I think the story of that scene and those people is ironically even bigger than a story like The Famine, which is colossal and very hard to get your head around, but we can all understand... One a simple human story, story. Yeah. microcosm of it. I think if you give somebody... A distillation of anything like that, and it's the same with World War Two or something. We cannot understand it, but we are fascinated with the individual stories and the struggles and the things that people encounter and what they do to survive. And and so, this story stayed with me. I I, I also thought it was such a universal story that nobody could read that anywhere and not be moved by it. You know, so it it when when it came to the point of. Um, kind of building on what I had done in song. I, I I experimented with a few short stories, but I ended up being pulled right back down this rabbit hole, back to the source of what inspired me on this subject. And and uh, so it's built around their lives. And as I began to find out what was available to them and what they had to do to survive, um, which was fascinating in itself, I started to find other characters, other people, real people, a guy called Cornelius Creed, who's at the centre of McCroom, and he's literally in a pawn shop, which is, you know, he's encountering the poor every day. There's sometimes it's his place is the last place they come to on their way to the workhouse, you know, so he's right at the centre of everything. He's also writing for the paper, corresponding on, on what's happening with the Board of Guardians. They're the people who have life over, power over life and death. And he's also on the relief committee. So... He was just pivotal to to be a set of eyes and ears for how everything was unfolding in that area for me. But then I started to to get to know him and see his own story and his own tragedy. He pushed his way in, you know, he became very just as central as the Obukla family and it became a, a kind of a, a, a bi, you know, uh, you could say bilingual, bicoastal, I don't know. But um, it was a dual story, you know, it was like a tree with two huge branches. And you immersed yourself in that and got the book written. I did, yes. I, I um I'm gonna get a t shirt made that says I spent lockdown in eighteen forty six. Actually before we get to music so I might actually move to your favourite authors and books. Okay. So what in particular would you pick out as a standout for you? You know, that was a very difficult question. And I I realized in recent days, too, that I used to really struggle. It took me years to formulate good answers, even about music. And I think that's because I like, even in music, I like songs, I like certain songs to get. I find it very hard to stick to one particular person or say I've listened to an entire person's body of work, you know. And it's the same with writers I read. But I think I read a lot of um, uh, kind of nonfiction I read a lot of books about, say, Antarctic exploration, Shackleton, Scott, those kinds of people. So it's it's real life and biographies. 
So I love those kind of things. There was a great book called Endurance by Alfred Lansing. I know I, I mentioned that. Um, uh, things like that. But there's novels along the way. I think the likes of Ernest Hemingway and John Steinbeck and people of that ilk, you know, they, they have a very classic, direct way of telling a story. And I like that. I'm a bit old school, maybe. We're going to actually play a little bit of the audio version of Hemingway's The Old Man in the Sea. And this is read by Charlton Heston. Wow. He was an old man who fished alone in his skiff in the Gulf Stream. And he'd gone 84 days now without taking a fish. In the first 40 days, a boy had been with him. But after 40 days without a fish, the boy's parents had told him that the old man was now definitely and finally Salau, which is the worst form of unlucky. And the boy had gone at their orders in another boat, which caught three good fish the first week. It made the boy sad to see the old man come in each day with his skiff empty. And he always went down to help him carry either the coiled lines or the gaff and harpoon and the sail that was furled around the mast. The sail was patched with flour sacks and furled it looked like the flag of permanent defeat. The old man was thin and gaunt with deep wrinkles in the back of his neck. The brown blotches of the benevolent skin cancer the sun brings from its reflection in the tropic seas were on his cheeks. The blotches ran well down the sides of his face, and his hands had the deep-creased scars from handling heavy fish in the cords. But none of these scars were fresh. They were as old as erosions in a fishless desert. Isn't that beautiful? Having very simple language, but... Um, sorry, Matt. Uh, very simple language, but it's, it's full of nuance and kind of detail, and it pulls you into another world. The other world, of course, Declan O'Rourke, that you have it all the time is music. And this love now of writing is not taking away, I presume, from your musical career, is it? No, not at all. I think, you know, I think um, I learned something fascinating to, uh, to me about myself anyway during this process. And that's that, you know, I, for, for a long time, I've identified myself just as a songwriter. I thought that's what I was. I wasn't interested. In, but, you know. I think I'm just a creative person. It doesn't matter what, because when I was doing this, I didn't think about music at all. I was completely immersed and I didn't miss music. And um, I think it just fulfilled the same function for me. Let's get to the music, though. Early influences. And we ask everyone to nominate a single. You didn't give us a single such. You gave us a record that you'd asked for and received as a child, which was very formative to you. Paul Simon's Graceland. Tell us about why that particular album. Um, I don't, I, well, I remember being on the radio. I, was, I think I was seven, maybe. And I was just at that age where you're starting to really notice more grown-up sounds and that kind of thing, you know. Um, and it was, I guess it was my first experience of the publicity machine of, of an artist and a record being pushed because it was everywhere all of a sudden and we were seeing the video for You Can Call Me Al and people, you know, I was hearing grown-ups talking about, oh, that guy who appears there with the red hair and plays a bit of whistler, that's Garfunkel, they used to be together. And you, so you're imagining this whole rich back history and, you know, I was very intrigued by that. And um, I actually got two copies of Graceland for Christmas because... I got one from Santa Claus, mysteriously, and uh, somebody else, a friend of the family, uh, bought it for me. So I sold one for for a five pound note, <laughs> <laughs> which is great, you know. And um, 
It's still a great record, isn't it? it? Is. You know, um, I got to uh, I got to see the 25th anniversary tour in Hyde Park in London. I was invited by very, very uh, just generously. I was invited to come and go backstage and meet Paul afterwards and things like that, uh, which was, you know, a bit of a thrill. And I um, it was. Watching the show, I was uh, goosebumps. I had a few tears. Just remember, you know, pulled you the way music pulls you right back into that moment. I could remember listening to it in bed on my walk on Christmas night. You know that kind of thing. Let's hear a little bit from one of the tracks on the album. This is "Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes." People say she's crazy. She got diamonds on the soles of her shoes. Well, that's one way to lose these walking blues. Diamonds on the soles of your shoes She was physically forgotten But then she slipped into my pocket With my car keys She said you've taken me for granted Because I please you Wearing these diamonds And I could say talking about as if everybody here would know exactly what I was talking about I'm talking about diamonds on the soles of her shoes Paul Simon's wonderful Graceland album. We did, Declan O'Rourke, the unfair question of your favourite album. And like many people who do the Culture Club, they find it nearly impossible to pick out just one. You've picked out a few for us. Um, mm. Jeff Buckley's Grace were one of them. Oh, I think that I think that would go down as one of the greatest records of the 20th century. You know, it's brilliant. It's a brilliant snapshot of an artist exploding into creative life you know just uh, a, a, an extremely gifted individual uh, with so much to give and so much potential right in the glare you know You also gave us Joni Mitchell's Ladies of the Canyon we'll get back to Joni Mitchell in a moment but the one we're going to play a track from is Paul Brady and Andy Irvine and uh, their album uh, Locker and Shore Why'd you pick that? Well, uh, well, the album is just called Paul Brady and the Irvine. Well, sorry, yeah, that's the track we have. Song on it. No worries. Um, I picked that because it's been there since I can remember. You know, I was actually recorded the month, if not the year I was born, um, which which is, you know, maybe just uh, synchronicity. But it's been there since I can remember music. My parents were listening to it. They, they were very eclectic with their music. They listened to everything from, you know, Otis Redding and blues and whatever was popular. Lots of traditional Irish music. My dad was into flamenco and you, you name it. There was all kinds of stuff playing. But, um, you know, Paul Brady and Andy Irvine, that album, and Paul Brady's You're Welcome Here, Kind Stranger, Planksty, the Black album, they featured very heavily in my early memories of music. And um, I remember... When even this is gone before Paul Simon or anything else, you know, when your legs are too short to reach the floor and they're dangling while you're listening to music, swinging your legs, and 
And but but you know they still stand up. They're still outstanding collections of music and and performances. That um, I think I sometimes think as you get older, it's hard to find new music because you have so much memory and emotion invested in things that are attached to your life. But some of them, some of them date and some of them don't. Some of them get stronger and better. And that's a great example of one of those records. So from Paul Brady and Andy Irvine, this is Locker and Shore. Before we take the break, I want to ask you about your favourite artist. And I know you've, again, a lengthy list here and you mentioned you could have gone for the Beatles or for the Dubliners or whatever. But uh, Joni Mitchell, why have you picked her? Uh, she has it all. I don't know. She's just, she hits me in every place, you know, with her voice and her writing and her playing. You know, it's just, just the way they all come together. I think she's just sublime and, uh, you know, um... I didn't really discover her until I was a teenager. And she has just held that place since then, you know. And I learned to sing listening to Joni and Jeff Buckley too, you know, when my my voice broke and I couldn't, it just landed in my boots and I abandoned any hopes of singing at all. I just wanted to be a guitar player then. And at some stage in my later teens, I was listening to these records and just singing along in falsetto, which was, you know, like... I, I, I didn't think, I was just, you know, there was no way I was going to become a falsetto singer. So there was no uh, kind of goal with doing that. But just by accident, I learned how to use my voice doing that, I think. And, and um, she, I, f- I feel like she's one of my musical parents, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? And uh, all of these people, their influences bleed into what you do. Strongly, and you kind of you reach to them, and you sometimes think, "I wonder would they approve of this?" Let's hear it by Joni Mitchell, River. green 
I'm gonna make a lot of money, then I'm gonna quit this crazy scene. I wish I had a river I could skate away on. I wish I had a river so long I would teach my feet to Joni Mitchell, you're far from the first person to have nominated Joni Mitchell as favourite artist as well. I need to take a quick break. We need to get the traffic. We'll be back with more of the Culture Club with Declan O'Rourke after this. Welcome back. Declan O'Rourke, songwriter, singer, now novelist. The Pawnbroker's Reward is his debut novel, is with us for the Culture Club here on The Last Word of Today FM. We're going to finish the music section, which we didn't before the break, with gigs. Obviously, you've played countless gigs yourself, but of those you've gone to, what do you remember the best and why? Uh, my first ever proper concert was Neil Young with Booker T and the MGs at Slane. I think it was 92, 93. And I was about 15. And uh, I was I was big into Pearl Jam at the time. And they were my reason for wanting to go to Slane. My dad Good said reason. I was too young. Yeah, it was a great reason. My dad said I was too young. And you're not going, you know, and an uncle of mine said he was a big Neil Young fan. He said, I'll bring him. And so my dad said, OK, off you go. And so then we, we had a kind of an argument. We, I kept saying, Pearl Jam, going to kill this day, you know. And he was saying, ah, oh, laughing and saying, you just wait and see. You just wait and see. You know, Pearl Jam were great, but Neil Young, Jesus, it just, wow. You know, never recovered from it. And um Lifelong fan ever since, but it was just the magic, the energy. And I think he played Southern Man twice in my memory. I could be completely wrong, but it, it, that was the impact of it. it was like my brain. It was like twice and the sound and the electric guitars. and You know, it was just so inspiring. We have Neil Young, not from Slane, but this is Neil Young live singing Ohio. better move away from the music Declan O'Rourke that's him tamed anyway you want the, the <laughs> you want the band. electric oh, version God, do you the big electrified version of that yeah <laughs> <laughs> to get a sense of slaying you know yeah he was in his heavier rock period yeah, then yeah. was he crazy okay. horse and all that yeah brilliant 
Let's move to movies. You've picked as your favourite movie, 12 Angry Men with Henry Fonda. Why? God, well, it's so hard to ever pick something like that, isn't it? But, you know, 12 Angry Men, you have a classic, brilliant story told in one room. It's almost like a play, isn't it? But, you know, you don't really know where it's gone and brilliant acting and then a great twist at the end. It's all about the story, isn't it? Uh, and it's just a timeless film. It's brilliant. I think it's probably a lot of the younger generation mightn't have seen that yet. And uh, they they remade it, I think, in recent years, didn't they? I don't know. I don't know if I saw that version, but the old black and white version is just incredible. We have a clip from it, which features Henry Fonda. Eleven guilty, one not guilty. Well, now we know where we are. Boy, oh boy, there's always one. <laughs> oh, what are we doing now? I guess we talk. Boy, oh boy. You really think he's innocent? I don't know. I mean, you sat in court with the rest of us. You heard what we did. The kid's a dangerous killer. You could see it. He's 18 years old. Well, that's old enough. He, he stabbed his own father four inches into the chest. They proved it a dozen different ways in court. Would you like me to list them for you? No. Then what do you want? Just want to talk. Well, what's there to talk about? Eleven men in here think he's guilty. No one had to think about it twice except you. I want to ask you something. Do you believe his story? I don't know whether I believe it or not. Maybe I don't. So how come you vote not guilty? Well, there were eleven votes for guilty. It's not easy to raise my hand and send a boy off to die without talking about it first. Well, now, who says it's easy? No one. What, just because I voted fast? I honestly think the guy's guilty. Couldn't change my mind if you talked for a hundred years. I'm not trying to change your mind. It's just that we're talking about somebody's life here. We can't decide it in five minutes. Supposing we're wrong. Supposing we're wrong. Great drama. Brilliant, isn't it? I'm going to watch that tonight, I think. <laughs> Lee Cox is great in it as well. Your favourite play, Shadow of the Gunman by Sean O'Casey. I haven't seen a, a massive amount of plays. Uh, I've, I've been to see a few. I've been to Broadway. I've been to theatre and few different countries on the on the but it was hard to pick one I, I, I was pulled back to that was actually shadow of a gunman i saw it in uh the abbey maybe six or seven years ago i think and uh it was great then but i remember doing it in school as well we did it in in class over maybe a cert. month or That's something clear. i can't remember yeah it was, just, it was junior cert or leaving cert and it was very colorful you know, I just remember all of this stuff about the tapping on the wall and, uh, you know, it was very colourful and it drew you in and it was very, very well formed, I thought, yeah. Your love of the story again. Let's have a yeah. scene from A Shadow of the Gunman. Can't you leave not sit down till tomorrow? Oh, can't be did. Can't be did, Seamus. If I waited till tomorrow, all the butterflies might be dead. Well, you're not. I'll leave this bag here until this evening. No. No, look, just... Goodbye. Ah, oh, what a hopeless country. And there's a fellow who believes and the four cardinal virtues are not to be found outside an Irish Republic. I don't want to boast about myself. And I suppose I can call myself as good a gale as some of those who are knocking about now. But I remember the time when I taught Irish six nights a week when in the Irish Republican Brotherhood, 
I paid me rifle levy like a man. And when the church refused to have anything to do with James Stevens, I tarred a prayer for the repose of his soul on the steps of the Procathedral. Now, after all me hard work for Dark Rosaline, the only answer you can get from a roaring Republican to a simple question is goodbye. Shadow of a gunman, Sean O'Casey. Great Irish writers, don't we? We have the best writers in the world. And they had big events going on contemporarily in their lives, you know, to write about. Television. You don't have a particularly long list of television to give to us at all. No, <laughs> compared to all the other lists. Um, I just went for one of the most recent things I watched and I really enjoyed it, you know, because uh, we're all fiends for the box sets these days. That's we, we don't have actual television at home. It's just like Netflix and Amazon or whatever, the Apple TV box. Uh, and that Goliath thing with Billy Bob was brilliant. I think I said Fargo. Billy Bob too, didn't I? Yeah, you did say Fargo. He happened Albert. to be in both of them. Far, he was brilliant in the first series of Fargo. I haven't seen Goliath, so I've been wondering is it worth watching? Oh, so you've got to sell that. it to me now. He's great. Well, do you know what? In in Fargo, I thought he was a bit of his usual two dimensional stereotyped Bob, Billy Bob, you know. But um, it's that real droll kind of scowling, you know. Very convincing, cold blooded killer. <laughs> yes, absolutely. He's great for that. But in, in Goliath, there's a, a, a kind of just a. A Billy Bob I've never seen before. More depth to him, is there? Yeah, more depth and more human. It's a bit more open and a bit, bit more vulnerable. And it's really good. And uh, it, it's great stories, great episodes. And, it, you know. Does he play a lawyer in it, is it? He does play a lawyer, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's hear a clip from it. What have you got? No idle chit chat first? You have 20 minutes, sir. Okay. I'll try to do it in about five. This is the affidavit of Ryan Larson's son declaring his opinion that this was no suicide. It's my personal affidavit of conversations I had with eyewitnesses who say that this explosion was a hell of a lot bigger and a hell of a lot worse than what would happen if you dropped a match into a fuel tank of a boat. Now, this one right here contains all of the anecdotal, physical, and testimonial evidence introduced or alleged by anyone who supports the notion that Ryan Larson was suicidal. And as you can see, it's blank, because there ain't nobody. This is the video footage of the actual explosion. Match of the fuel tank. This is the declaration of one Alejandro Marquez authenticating that he captured this video footage and that it's a fair and accurate representation of what happened the night that Ryan Larson was killed. I think if you examine this evidence, you can safely make a finding. Billy Bob Thornton and Goliath. So I'm going to try it now on your head. Oh, if I don't it's like a it. great series. You will not be disappointed. Another t- one I'll mention briefly, I watched recently. It was just one season and it's brilliant. Uh, I think I was drawn in on the title alone, which I thought sounded just interesting and funny. I love Dick. <laughs> and uh, it's, uh, what's his name? Kevin Bacon. One season. Very quirky. Brilliant. Really good writing. Okay, wasn't aware of that one. Listen, we're out of time. Congratulations on the publication of your debut novel, The Pawn Brokers Reward. Declan O'Rourke, thank you very much for being with us on The Last Word here tonight. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today.